Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is a Friday, the 19th of February. Um, what a week it has been. We say that each and every week. So there you go. Um, I want to pause for a moment this morning and consider how the landscape is changing around you. Now, you may look out your window and say, whew, the landscape has changed around me this week because it is white where ordinarily it is not. Or you may say it is ordinarily white and it is not. Um, But I want you to consider the wider landscape. I want you to consider buildings and neighborhoods, uh, how things have changed. Um, Maybe the internal guts of your airport, the layout of your grocery store. All kinds of things have changed um, in in the course of the last year. I drive down streets that used to uh, look like something I remember, and then um, I recognize that, wow, I haven't been down this street in a year. I haven't had occasion to go this way and see this part of town um, it, you know, in large measure because of COVID. And so the landscape has changed a lot. This week, there were a couple of changes in a couple of cities that I just want to take note of in terms of massive changes in the landscape. And there's a cultural uh, moment to point out in each of these as well. This week in Atlantic City, people actually paid money to be able to park and watch the implosion of Trump Plaza. Um, and that's um, that's an interesting comment and commentary in terms of what's happening in cities like Atlantic City. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to talk about gambling. It's an opportunity for us to talk about sin cities uh, across the country, not just, you know, sort of, you know, the capital of sin cities, which is Vegas, um, but also Christians who live in those places. So just think about the landscape in places that you recognize and places that maybe used to be dominated by smokestacks and steeples and what dominates the headline or uh, the um, the headline. Now, what do you call that? The what do you call that, Paul, as you're looking out across and you skyline, skyline, whoo, not the headline, the skyline in cities that you love. Um, and then let me highlight this from the nation's capital this week. People are actually strangely getting used to working their way around new traffic patterns um, because of barricades and fencing and razor wire and even National Guard troops that are still in place now a full month uh, after the inauguration uh, of the new president. But I want to take note of something that happened in D.C. this week, halfway, halfway between the White House and the Capitol building. So at the midpoint, if you are walking from the White House to the Capitol building, there has now since 2008 been a building called the Museum. Now, the Museum um, had on its facade huge pieces of Tennessee marble engraved with the First uh, Amendment of the Constitution, 75-foot declaration halfway between the White House and the Capitol that declared to everyone, Congress shall make no law 
respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Well, now uh, several of those enormous uh, panels are gone and the rest are going to be removed next month because the Freedom Forum was forced to sell the building and the museum has been closed now for a couple of years. It's a stark reminder of how even that which is carved in stone can be collectively stored away and sometimes even forgotten, out of sight, out of mind. It made me think of the Ten Commandments given by God to Moses. They were written in stone by the finger of God upon the hearts of people by the power of the Spirit. Um, It's important that we call them to mind and keep them before us. I want you to note the number of times, the number of times God in his word reminds us to what? To remember, to remember, to remember. And maybe you've never even taken note of the fact that um, in the in the first uh, declaration of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20, guess what the first word is? The first word is remember. So let us remember today who we are and whose we are. Let us remember the commands of God that we might indeed um, be kept holy. And, and, and let us recognize that Jesus doesn't, um, he doesn't do away with the law and the commandments. He fulfills them. And there is something there for us to remember as well. All right, next up, uh, Matt Hawkins is Waiting. Uh, He and I are going to talk about some things that have happened in D.C. this week as well as the Biden administration begins striding forward uh, on its plan. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. He's the former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. He worked in Washington, D.C. He actually knows some of the characters about whom we are about to uh, talk. Matt, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Good to be back. You, have, you, have you dug out of your snow yet? I'm still looking uh, at dude, snow. We have so, we have window, so much snow. Extremely rare. I know. <laughs> we are. I know. So the people who are listening across the upper Midwest, uh, you know, they're they're already closing their eyes and shaking they're their heads. Un- at they're you un- un- they're unimpressed. No, 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 they're, no. We're all just going. You Southerners make us laugh. I know. I know. I know. I I had to. We don't declare... even have a proper snow shovel. <laughs> no, no, of course not. No, and and come to find out, the broom is quite ineffective. And um, it is. Um and. Yeah, it's definitely uh, it's it's still like deep. Like the snow is deep. I mean, for us, obviously, yeah, and us. Um, it's it gets crunchy overnight. Every like every time I step out my front door to come to the uh, to the you know the little um, studio out here that's I don't know fifty paces from my front door, um, uh-huh. I'm surprised by how slick those steps are. <laughs> yeah. All anyway, of our Northwestern uh-huh. friends are just rolling I, their eyes at us. I might have had to go back into the house this morning and and redress an issue related to um, <clears throat> a misstep in the snow. That is all I have right. to say about that. Um, all right. Uh, President Biden has signed an executive order reestablishing the White House yeah. faith office. 
and reappointing Melissa Rogers, who headed that office under President Obama. Um, This is an office you know well and people you know well. So I thought it'd be fun to talk with you about it today. I appreciate it. Yeah, I like the opportunity to talk about this. Um, The faith-based office, uh, it's gone through a few different iterations. It was launched um, first by President George W. Bush. And uh, it's a little bit of an interesting history there, but you're coming up on basically 20 years worth of that history um, for what the Bush administration called the Office of Faith-Based Partnerships uh, under Obama. They renamed it um, Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, I think. And it appears that under the Biden administration, interestingly enough, they're just going to call it the Partnerships Office. (laughs) Um, for short, um, which may communicate a little bit about what they intend to do um, with that office. Look, uh, the, I the I office, was choosing. I, a, I no, you're exactly right. I, that stood out to me. I made a note of that. Um, uh, I I made a note of the fact that the shorthand is not going to include the word faith. That the shorthand right. for this is now the partnerships office. Um, right. I was also making note in my own. In my own notes, that um, it seems like their first order of uh, uh, of business is to figure out how to um, you know co-opt as many or include as many or collaborate with as many community partners as possible to um, not right. only support Biden's 1.9 billion dollar American Rescue Plan, but to um, uh, to find places and spaces where the COVID vaccine could either be distributed or at least um, publicly advocated. And it will be interesting right. to see if and if so, how many faith organizations, faith-based groups are willing to sort of be used by the government in that way. I, I hate to describe it like that, but that's what yeah. that feels like. Yeah. And the, you know, as they say, the devil is in the details uh, in a lot of this, Carmen. I think in, in some ways, uh, it, it, certainly in theory, I like the idea of having a faith based office um, uh, within Absolutely. government, within government ranks. Um, not the least of which uh, the concern is that you got to have someone that speaks religion. Uh, mm-hmm. in a government agency. Uh, people listening here would be surprised at how inept uh, government staff uh, and even leaders are just disconnected um, in really meaningful ways from faith, uh, kind of just communities of faith. They just don't understand. So even uh, even when they're not being hostile to our convictions and our beliefs, um, they're just inept. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, frankly, that goes uh, on both sides of the aisle. It's not just secularist Democrats that you might anticipate having issues with this. This, this, this happens in, re- in Republican offices too, I promise you. Um, so having an office there that at least can, you know, kind of translate and kind of be a receptor um, to communicate with faith groups, I'm, I have very little problem with that. Um, when, when I, um, as far as my experience is concerned, I did notice that, um, the use of Obama's office, uh, did, did this versus the use of, uh, George W. Bush's office that did this. It was a little different. Um, George W. Bush office, uh, clearly created it. And then, um, they mostly, it was mostly an effort to try to, um, you know, grant, uh, religious communities, um, particularly those of us who are kind of center right, um, that aren't into the whole secularized leftist kind of thing, um, to be able to participate 
with you know, in, in a better way with uh, government grants and that kind of thing. Now, I, I as a Baptist, of course, am, am always skeptical about faith groups receiving money. But the the point about um, the uh, the um, First Amendment. Um, clauses about religion is, you know, our courts have decided that you can't, uh, if you're going to make grants available to uh, generally the general public, you can't restrict it from a religious group because they're religious, right? And so if you're going right. to offer competitive grants to do things in, in communities, whether it's federal or state, you can't uh, you can't exclude faith groups. Uh, there have been numerous um, cases about that. Um, so in, in some sense, you know, you have an office that provides a liaison uh, for that kind of thing. Now, uh, under Obama um, administration, I, I did see um, that they use the Office of Faith-Based Partnerships more strategically for the purpose of their own agenda, uh, to mm -hmm. do things, um, and to, to kind of propagate their own initiatives. Um, now some of those are pretty innocuous, like, um, when school lets out for the summer, uh, where do, uh, kids who need food, food, people who are food insecure or impoverished, where do they get their, their meals when they're not going to school? Right. And so the Obama administration, uh, I think in a good way tried to, um, uh, kind of embrace, uh, religious groups, uh, to try to facilitate, uh, some of those. That's a, that's a good thing. Um, as we indicated under the Biden administration, it's called just the partnerships office, <laughs> um, which takes an emphasis away from faith. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as, you know, leadership goes, um, within uh, a Democrat based office, um, Melissa Rogers is, uh, very competent. Um, she, uh, comes out of a group before the, she was with the Obama administration called the Baptist joint committee. Uh, so she's a, a left of center, um, kind of, uh, kind of person. Um, but she, when we were there, um, during the six year, I was there under six years of Obama and, uh, two years under Trump. She was always receptive. Um, she was was always we were always able to communicate with her. Um, there was some, you know, we we're a little skeptical about how much influence that office actually had within the White House. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but you you could get a call back um, and and exchange emails and uh, sometimes sometimes that's all you can ask for in the context of a federal government. Right. Um, so be interested to see where they where they go with this. Um, but I would anticipate, like you mentioned, that that Biden would probably uh, use utilize uh, that partnerships. Group group, um, pretty intentionally, uh, to help propagate, uh, some of their own agenda. Uh, again, some of which we would have concerns with others of it would be, you know, relatively innocuous if it's, if it's like, you know, getting federal grant money to, to feed kids when they're not in school. Right. So, all right, we got to take a very um, that's brief my, break. That's my quit take. Yeah, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, um, Matt and I are going to address a couple of life or abortion, depending on which way you want to frame the conversation, uh, a couple of headlines um, related to that. So um, Matt Hawkins and I will be right back. Together. Continuing my conversation with Matthew Hawkins, you can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. Um, Matt, let's uh, let's just survey and look at a couple of headlines related to life this week. Um, what's what's yeah. going on on the life front? Well, there's some state level activity, uh, particularly from the western side of our country. There's some news from both New Mexico and Arizona, and uh, it's rather interesting. In New Mexico, the state level 
uh, Senate had, has passed a bill uh, intended to repeal a basically a dormant uh, ban on abortion. Um, so the news report indicates it's been long dormant. So apparently it's a ban that is in practice, not enforced. Um, but, uh, Senate, the state Senate there is trying to go ahead and repeal that. So the Senate voted 25 to 17, uh, to just remove, uh, uh, the legislation to, to pull it off the books. Um, so that's interesting. It's an indication that uh, um, uh, at the state level in New Mexico, at least, uh, they're not a given, they're going to try to remove uh, a, a ban on abortion that isn't really functional anyway, but they want to take it off the books anyway. So um, that will be interesting to watch uh, to see what, what is challenged there. Uh, and then from um, Arizona, a Republican lawmaker, I believe a sophomore legislator, apparently has announced or described it's unclear to me uh, it's unclear to me um, it was difficult to I couldn't find the text of the bill but apparently he has announced um, that he's going to introduce a bill at, again at the state level to qu- prosecute women who have had abortions for mm. homicide along mm. with doctors who provide them this Carmen is rather troubling uh, to say the least um, you and I are both uh, pro-life advocates, and we want to see uh, the abortion practice ended. Um, but there are lots of ways to go about doing that, and nowhere um, for my two decades of um, engaging really heavily for the, with the pro-life movement was as prosecuting women uh, for abortions any part of any credible mainstream pro-life group. Um, Nowhere ever. In fact, uh, when then-candidate Trump uh, mentioned something like it on the fly, um, our primary uh, pro-life groups like the March for Life and um, and others uh, swatted that down, that idea down rather quickly and swiftly, and, and Trump retracted. Um, it's not a place that we need to go, uh, number one, and I don't think it's really helpful um, in the context of that, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, the the developments in Arizona I find particularly troubling, and I guess I hope there's you know like no chance that such a thing would would pass. I do want to highlight and celebrate for people what's going on in South Carolina. Um, the governor of South Carolina, I mean, according to headlines that I'm reading this morning, um, did. Uh, passed, did sign, did sign the bill prohibiting most abortions in the state of South Carolina when a fetal heartbeat is detected. Um, And so we've been watching fetal heartbeat legislation across the country. um, And now in Mm -hmm. South Carolina, um, you know, abortion would be prohibited if a fetal heartbeat is detected during an ultrasound. And there are very, very few exceptions allowed. Um, and, And so just wanted to you know, highlight that for um, for folks who follow such things across the country, and you know, concerned concerned about um, concerned about life. So we got yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, so. I mean, there's just and, all and kinds this, this of is, developments. Yeah, this is the preview of what we're going to get uh, mostly during the Biden administration. It's what happened during the Obama administration, uh, and basically a lot of a lot of uh, state level abortion related uh, uh, legislative activity. I think is what we're going to see because there's no, obviously no 
thing going to move um, at the federal level. Not not that it did during the Trump Trump years either, but uh, uh, we we saw a spike. Uh, even the even the left uh, called it, I think, uh, a you know like a hurricane basically of um, of pro life legislation. So I think we'll expect to see more of that in the coming years. I um I have a rising concern about international religious liberty um, issues that I mm-hmm. I just see being utterly ignored right now. Um, the Uyghurs probably top that list, but the Christians in the Tigray region, um, uh, you know, are of concern to me as well. Um, people around the world, when when America gets just very very focused on herself, um, bad yeah. actors around the world tend to treat vulnerable people even more poorly. And so I just didn't know That's if right. there were some headlines around the world where you just wanted to be sure, you know, we were we were paying attention. Yeah. Um, what's happening in China in particular um, with the Uyghur, uh, the Uyghur population is, um, uh, as the as Trump administration announced, uh, it's genocide. Now, it's, it's like it's not the genocide kind of genocide we're used to seeing. Uh, where people are just getting murdered and and slaughtered uh, immediately. It's more like a kind of a slow burn genocide where they're trying to really erase the identity of an entire population, Um, you know, a a million or two um, who are uh, subjugated right now um, to uh, internment camps, uh, basically, and they're being reeducated. Not not to mention the fact that there are credible reports about uh, forced abortions um, and uh, really enabled by high tech, uh, high tech surveillance state uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, I think that's that there are other abuses, like you mentioned, happening elsewhere. Um, but the United States is going to have to figure out how to uh, kind of, frankly, the whole Western world is going to have to figure out how um, how to deal with China's abuse of the Uyghur uh, population after years of uh, other other human uh, humanitarian crises where everybody in the West said never again or not on our watch. Right. Um, when that when that happened in uh, particularly Sudan um, and, in, uh, and in Bosnia. Well, guess what? It keeps happening and uh, we're not doing much about it yet. Yeah. All right, we got to leave it right there. Um, Matt, as always, thank you so much. You guys can find Matt at MatthewTHawkins.com or he tweets at MTHawk. We'll be right back. All right, I'm so tempted um, to ask Dan DeWitt a question about um, fables, even though that's not something that I emailed him about. So, I don't know, maybe you guys should weigh in. Do I surprise a guest with a question that I know that in his heart he's prepared to answer, but, mm, you know, I didn't actually tee up? Uh, I read a headline um, out of Africa. and Well, it's the headlines out of um, from the BBC, but it's in reference to an event that took place a month ago in in the Tigray region of Africa in Ethiopia. And I I didn't know this. I didn't know that the Ark of the Covenant is um, is understood to be housed in a or guarded by a particular church in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. Well, you may be familiar with the ongoing war in that region. Um, there is uh, There are some, some news that some uh, 750 Christians, the entire congregation of the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion, um, were massacred in an attempt to guard the Ark of the Covenant. I I missed this, which, you know, so anyway, I'm, I'm tempted to raise it with Dan. We'll see. It's the Weekend Worldview Reader section up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
Conflict comes in many forms. Sometimes it explodes in boiling burst of anger. Other times it comes over the house like a sheet of ice, sending a chill across your relationships. So, what's the temp in your household today? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I challenge you to take a positive view of conflict, whether it's heated debate with your teens or awkward silence. Consider this. If you've ever prayed to be the parent God has called you to be, that's what he's doing. The process may throw you off balance, but conflict with your kids may be refining your character in ways you never imagined. No matter the temperature in your household, trust God to guide you and help you make the most of his refining work in you. Parenting Teens isn't for the faint of heart. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. All right, joining me, Dan DeWitt. You can find what we're talking about today at theolatte.com, except for the topic that I am springing on him first. All right, are you, <laughs> good morning, are you, Carmen. You, good morning. Good morning. Now, trust me when I tell you you're prepared for this conversation. But I would just right. like for you to uh, reflect on maybe the relationship between fact and fables and faith and fiction. Like, go pick any two you want, but you have to use the word fable somewhere. What is a fable? And how would you respond if in a news headline, the Ark of the Covenant was referred to as a fabled Ark? You know, that would obviously show that they reject it as being a historical description, right? So a fable would be something that might teach a moral um, but mm. the details aren't necessarily important or true. And so I think that, you know, when it comes to using these kind of stories like the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings, things of which we love to convey some deeper truth, I think there's power in that. But we also as Christians need to be um, quick to recognize when someone's using that language and superimposing it over um, historical accounts in the Bible as Christians, even if we at times are reluctant or feel embarrassed, kind of like we talked about the last time I was on, um, we may not like to be called a fundamentalist because we take these historical accounts literally. Um, but if we're if we truly believe God exists and that He's revealed Himself, then there's no reason we should question the validity of of the Ark of the Covenant or of the Flood or of the resurrection of Jesus. Is that the direction so, you wanted me to go? Yeah, no, totally, and that's super helpful. And I and I wrote some notes, and I will reflect further on this. I missed a headline like a month ago now um, related to the Ark of the Covenant. I didn't actually know that there's a church in the Tigray region of Ethiopia where 750 uh, congregants, you know, in one church, the, the church that understands itself to be the um, historical keeper of the Ark of the Covenant— um, Every wow. single one of those individuals was slaughtered. I didn't know that. Like, I, I don't know how I missed that, but that happened like a month ago. So anyway, I'm going to do a little more research. I'm going to circle back. I'm going to bring it. You and I will talk about it more. Um, but the headline in, in The Guardian is fabled Ark could be among mm-hmm. ancient treasures in danger in Ethiopia's deadly war. 
And I, and the word fabled just like leapt out at me. Like I, it's the Ark of the Covenant. It's there. There's no fable. There's no there's no fabling here. I don't know if fabling yeah. is a word, but you get my point. <laughs> it is now. It is now. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about what is in uh, this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. Let's lead off with a piece posted at Theolatte.com entitled Redeeming Boredom. This sounds good. You know, so this actually connects to what we were talking about in terms of the positive use of fable, um, not, you know, dismissing the historicity of the Bible, you know, the historical, factual nature of these accounts in the Bible, but when Christians use their imagination to create worlds in which there's an, you know, an underlying um, Christian view of reality that's being expressed through talking animals and these kinds of things. So um, often it's in these quiet moments when we're not distracted by all the external things around us, the political divisive nature of how people talk to each other on Twitter, when we have to slow down and be quiet, it's in those moments when we have to face ourselves, but it's also in those moments, I would argue, that we could have our greatest creative breakthroughs. Blaise Pascal once said that all of humanity's problems stem from their inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Well, if anything can force us to do that, COVID, a global pandemic, can do just that. And so I lead the article off with the quote from Pascal, and then I describe how The Hobbit, Tolkien's famous book, um, grew out of a moment in which he was kind of lost in thought. He became bored grading a student's paper. He came to a blank page, and he stopped for a moment, and then he wrote, in a hole in, a, in, a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And he had to ask the question, what's a hobbit? And the only way to make sense of what a hobbit was, was to write the story. <laughs> I know, and I just love that. I love, um, I love your observation that um, quiet moments can lead to breakthroughs of genius. Um, I'm just so aware that when our lives are overly full, just full to the brim, there's no room whatsoever for... Um, any spark of creative genius, let alone, you know, the the writing of a tale or a story or um, the the production of a genuine piece of, you know, heartfelt art, however you might. I mean, you don't even have time to, you know, take a, a, a pile of clay and form it into something unless you have like created intentional space to do that. Yeah, you know, it, it, it really requires... Um breathing space or what we might in design, we call it white space that, you know, when you have, whether it's the color white or any other color that often a good design will, ha will make good use of the white space, the empty space. And I mm. think that that's true for any medium that we really need enough room to think, to reflect. And as Pascal talks about in his, um, his wonderful book, that's just a publication of his diary, essentially his thoughts. Um, Pascal said that we're always seeking distraction because we really don't want to face ourselves. And that is painful to do. But I think that, you know, it's, it's when you read an author who it resonates with you, it's because they're being real with who they are. They're reflecting on the human experience and they're able to say something meaningful about it. And whether that is a sculpture, a painting, 
or woodwork, whatever, you know, a person's gift might be, that their greatest creations are going to come out of those moments when there's what proper white space, when they're able to have enough room to breathe and reflect. And so we need to quit running from those. Um, and just imagine there could be a silver lining to this pandemic. Imagine all the creative genius that can come out of our quiet, our quiet moments where we're forced inside um, that it's time to create in the hole in the ground. There lived a hobbit. Let's let's get started. Mm. All right. Dan DeWitt and I are going to take a very brief break um, to read the entire piece, Redeeming Boredom. Just go and visit Theolatte.com. We'll be right back. All right. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. You can find what we're talking about today at Theolatte.com. Um, Dan, there was something in the Dayton Business Journal that caught your attention about um, Christianity in the workplace. Well, actually, why why should it be catching our attention today? <laughs> so um, I, I was interviewed a while back by the you know local business um, publication, the Dayton Business Journal, and they asked me as someone who leads the Center for Public Christianity, what should Christianity look like in the marketplace. Now, I'll be totally honest. I, I have to admit, I, I get to operate um, with all the benefits and all the limitations in a Christian bubble, you know, teaching at a Christian mm-hmm. university. And um, and I, that's been my experience for most of my career. You know, I prior to this, I taught at another Christian school. Um, however, you know, I think that every Christian needs to think about what's it really look like to live out your Christian faith somewhere where you're not going to be openly preaching or openly talking about the Christian worldview. And so what I told the interviewer was I think that Christians best live out their faith when they work hard, when they show respect for others, um, when they treat work as something that they're doing to the Lord, when they treat others as people they want to love as themselves, that that's the best way that Christians can live out their faith, not necessarily by trying to do a Bible study or not necessarily by trying to preach to people. Now, when those opportunities come, to take advantage of them in a respectful way, um, but that Christianity actually should produce the best employees who have a framework for thinking about doing things to the glory of God, doing things with excellence, um, and also who treat others with respect. And I had some people who were a little surprised by that. I have a neighbor who um, is not an active church attender who came up to me, and um, he's a military person and uh, um, has been involved in local politics, and he came up to me and was really thankful for that article because his experience was that Christians were often preachy and not necessarily the hardest workers. Okay, and then I um, want to spend a couple of minutes <clears throat> talking about this story, which um, I will admit to you, I, I was unaware of this until I read it um, in your post. I don't follow rap. I don't follow the rapper known as Lil Uzi Vert. Lil, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Lil yeah. Uzi Vert. Um, and I cannot imagine what would lead an individual to have a stone implanted in their forehead, let alone something that now everybody knows is a $24 million diamond. 
Um, that just seems, well, crazy on the face of it. But um, talk with me about what's going on here. And then obviously you make a really excellent uh, point and observation uh, that when a diamond in your head uh, does not actually increase your self-worth. Yeah, you know, I think that there's so many elements to this. I mean, some of this is just shocking. You know, he kind of looks like to, to you know, go back to the Marvel Universe, which we've talked about before, the cinematic universe, the character who's known as Vision, um, who has a, a infinity stone in his forehead, that this rapper has placed this $24 million diamond in his forehead. Um, so it's shocking it also, you ask, why would someone do that? Obviously, I think it's just a way of showing off one's wealth that, that you know, it's hard to imagine anything other than that. And I also think that there's this idea that this somehow is increasing his self-worth, increasing his um, status. And as Christians, we have to say, you know, you could put a $24 million diamond in your forehead and your self-worth has not increased a single penny. You are worth far more than that diamond in the eyes of God. And so as shocking as the story is and as interesting as it is, it's also a reminder that we have intrinsic worth and value and dignity because God made us in his own image. He has endowed us. The Creator has endowed us with inalienable rights and intrinsic value, and a diamond can't add to that one penny. Um, and then this observation that he makes that the only reason that he had it implanted in his forehead was the fear of losing it. Yeah, that that's interesting, isn't it? Because you would seem more likely to lose it when everywhere you go, it's highly, I mean, if someone wanted to attack you, it would be mm-hmm. more, easier to access the diamond in your forehead when it's visible than if it was safe housed somewhere um, at a bank or something like that. Uh, yeah, or, or in a ring. I mean, the, the issue the the issue yeah. was apparently you know he didn't want to put it in a ring. Um, I, I just I think it it creates so many opportunities for conversation um, about our bodies, about the value of uh, of people, um, about what we treasure, about what we spend um, our money on. I mean, $24 million, uh, it's interesting to spend it in this particular way. Um, And then it's interesting to wear it, like, literally on your person in such a... Yeah. um, I just, yeah. It's it's a fascinating story. I'm sure there's a lot of cultural commentary to be had here. What else are you thinking about today, uh, Dan DeWitt, in terms of um, what people might read this weekend... Uh, in terms of worldview? Well, I'll, I'll add one more thing to this story. I'll just say, you know, I think there are ways we all do what he's doing, which is mm. we try to find ways to add value. And it's okay to feel good about the way you present yourself and the way you dress. But I think the story makes us come back to what are the ways I'm trying to find my worth in something mm. that could be taken away easily? And as Jesus said, store up your treasures where thieves can't take it and the moths can't destroy it and rust can't destroy it. So I think it's a good reminder for us all, even if we're not placing diamonds in our forehead. 
Um, in terms of the Weekend Worldview Reader, I've got articles about elements of truth from Philosophy Now magazine. There's eight kind of qualifiers for thinking about when you read truth claims, um, either in a news story or a book or um, online. Um, Ruth Graham has an interesting piece at the New York Times about Christian prophets. Um, Arthur Brooks in The Atlantic talks about Lent, what you gain when you give things up. And so those are some of the articles that I have. I have a link to Rebecca McLaughlin's new um, book, which is taking her best-selling book, Confronting Christianity, and applying it to teenagers, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask. And then also related to books, I have a video of my favorite living Christian philosopher, Peter Kraft from Boston College, and he has about an hour-long video where he talks about 10 books everyone should Christians should read before they die. Hmm. All right, your Weekend Worldview reader. You can get um, links to all of the things that Dan just mentioned, as well as the things that he and I discussed here today. You can find it all at theolatte.com. Dan, as always, thank you so much. Thanks, Carmen. Take care. You too. We'll be right back. All right, uh, on the record, off the record, group chats, uh, the dangers of social media, ow, all kinds of things for us to consider in the news headlines today. How are you bringing the mind of Christ to bear on all of that? Well, first and foremost, we have to be in the Word of God uh, deeply and honestly before we could even begin to imagine that we would be prepared to apply the mind of Christ to the headline news of the day. So let me encourage you, if you have not done so already, get yourself, get thee into the Word this day. We're going to lead off the next hour with the Where in the Word segment, and I'll just go ahead and tell you that uh, where my mind went on this first Friday of Lent was the fact that there's a lot of people who eat fish on Fridays. And so I thought, well, uh, let's go into a text related to fish of which there are many in the Bible. And uh, and so I opened to Matthew chapter 4, and I was reading about uh, Jesus' call to the first disciples, um, promising to make them fishers of men. And that led me then to read the entirety of the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And I was reminded of the time that Jesus spent for 40 days in the wilderness and the temptations he experienced there. So all of that is my setup for the where end of the word segment at the lead off of the next hour of Mornings with Carmen. So be sure and stay tuned for that. You can always catch the podcast later at MyFaithRadio.com if you miss any portion of or a full episode of the program. And it's a great way to share it with someone else. So I uh, encourage you to circle back around and grab a link to the podcast in order that you can become a uh, a radio missionary, a missionary of this program and this ministry. All right, we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.